Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. You know, if someone ever asked me to build a profile of what would make the best guest for my show, that would be easy. I would just say, eh, just get Jeremiah Johnston on. That that will solve all your questions. And he is my guest today. He's written a brand new book called Body of Proof, The Seven Best Reasons to Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus and Why It Matters Today. Jeremiah is... uh, an author, he's a pastor, and he's also the president of Christian Thinkers Society. You can learn more about that at christianthinkers.com. Hey, brother. Bill, you're supposed to tell the truth on your show. You know that. <laughs> you are. You're like you're like my perfect guest. I was listening to hey, a show. Hey, you're just trying to make me feel good now at the end of this week. Well, I don't, I, it's I, such, I, you I know, get it. Listen, I'm not buying it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was re-listening to an episode we did way back in January, and I thought, this is this is such good radio. It's because you're such, well, a, you're such a great guest. You're, no, it's because you're a great host, uh, man. You got me. Well, anyway, congrats on your new book. I find this book compelling, and I want people to get it and read it. So I don't say that very often on my show. So let me uh, get started with some of the questions I have for you. If you're ready for I, them. I just got to tell you, man, um, I've never seen anything like this. I've got quite the story for you and your listeners, some delicious details I haven't shared on any other show, believe it or not. Cool. So when do you want to drop that little item? You want to do it now? Or? You want me to. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I can wait. So let's do it now. Well, I just want to say this. Um, I want to thank so many of you who've been praying for my dad. I found out, I don't want to date this show, but just about a month before uh, my new book, Body of Proof, The Seven Best Reasons to Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus was released. My dad, who is 63 and otherwise very healthy, was told he had days to live, stage four cancer, HLH syndrome. And so I immediately flew down to Houston and took control of his care. So obviously I didn't have time, Bill, to send out influencer copies of body of proof to like these YouTube personalities or, you know, people of influence. And that's totally normal to do, by the way, Um, just to let people give you a shout out. So I, I still haven't sent anything out. Um, and the book, by God's grace, has just taken off, and it's all His hand. So I've had no hand in the success of this book, other than just writing it and being obedient to God. But it just went into its third printing wow. because believers they want, and it hasn't even been released for that long. Um, believers want to have evidence for their faith, but they also want to know why it matters today. So I've only shared that on your show because you're like one of my dear friends. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm as speechless and surprised as anyone because. It's obviously God wanted this this out, and I'm just being obedient to Him. Hmm. Oh, that is such amazing, uh, amazing news. And and what, what? I'm sorry to say. What about Dad? Well, no, I'm glad you asked. It's been a miracle. He's cancer free. Hmm. Here we are, two months later. What? And he had a condition. It's a total miracle of God. He had a condition called HLH, which is when your immune system is overactivated and it can kill you. It has a it has a very stark mortality rate. 
And he was told, I mean, seriously, I was told, get back here. Your dad has days to live. And then they told us he had a decent chance of dying from this. And he started doing the chemo immunotherapy treatments. Of course, modern medicine is a miracle of God. Mm-hmm. And he is, he just had a PET scan this week. Again, I hate to date the program, but I just have to share. Um, he is cancer free wow. um, as of two days ago. He mm. still is going to complete his treatment plan through a few, a few more treatments because it's all going so well, but he is in remission. And two months ago, he was given a death sentence. Our God is awesome. And yeah. things happen when people pray, brother. Oh, amen to that, Jeremiah. Thank you for sharing all of that. I'm so encouraged that God has healed dad and that he has also put his hand on your book, Body of Proof, and it's exploding. So I am thrilled for this news. So thank you. Let, let's uh, let's jump into some of the questions I have for you, because it does seem that there are, there are many Christians, they get a little clumsy when it comes to talking about their, their resurrection faith. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that we need to do a better job equipping Christians who all believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Um, But a study was just released. I can't make this kind of stuff up. It was just released last week that two thirds of Christians believe in the resurrection, but aren't really too sure, Bill, why it matters to their everyday life. And that's because we have produced a clumsy Christianity that doesn't have a resurrection centrism. We're not centraling our belief on the resurrection like we see reflected in the New Testament. I want to make this clear because you're a great Christian thinker, Bill. And, you know, we talk a lot today about how important it is we have a Christian worldview and a biblical worldview. Well, friends, if you want to have a Christian worldview, make no mistake, the centerpiece of a Christian worldview is understanding, applying, and defending the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the reason that I popped this book out, Bill, was, listen, the church is underserved today. We we underteach the resurrection. We understudy it. We underpreach it. We only usually preach about it at the Easter or funeral. And friends, the resurrection is preached on literally in every sermon in the book of Acts. There's 300 passages on the new in the New Testament on the resurrection of Jesus. The promise we're given more than any other promise is the promise of John 14, 19, because Jesus lives, we will live also. And so, hey, we just we need some reminders. <laughs> we need to we need to be have a resurrection centric faith. Mm-hmm. When I look at all the the gospels and what are there eighty nine gospels eighty nine yeah. chapters all together and like a third right. of them are dedicated to this one week in the life of Jesus and there's yeah. so many passages on the resurrection in the New Testament and like you talked about the you know the book of Acts it's all over there so tell us uh, Jeremiah if you would about the resurrection faith of the early church compared to what we see today? We Well, here's the really cool thing, Bill, when you think about it. Our faith is based in a weekend event that was so overpowering, so powerful, it would, nobody ex- expected it, right? Um, there were 28 different men who claimed to be Israel, the Jewish Messiah. 28 different wow. Messianic candidates. I get, I get into this a little bit in my book. And listen, the Christian movement had died with Jesus because, of course, the Messiah wouldn't be killed on a Roman cross. So no one was expecting this. To their great surprise, Jesus was alive three days later on the third day. And to their great reluctance, they began not only explaining this to people, but defending it because they had personal experiences. By my count, 636 people 
had experiences of seeing Jesus alive in his resurrection, the last being the Apostle Paul. So 636 people cannot help describing what they've seen and heard evidentially. So our faith is rooted in a weekend that probably was April 9, AD 33. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's fascinating how we can get that close to the dating. I explain that for believers as well. And you bring up a vital point. You know, there are 89 chapters in the four Gospels. Only four chapters, by the way, are on Christmas. So let that sink in. The church was much more concerned about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and so that's why it became the central focus of the new movement. Another interesting thing, Bill, we talk a lot about the dominical tradition, which means the teaching of Jesus, but the proclamation that Jesus was risen actually took priority over even the teaching of Jesus himself. Wow. That's incredible. Dr. Jeremiah Johnston is my guest. His new brand new book is called Body of Proof. The Seven Best Reasons to Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus and Why It Matters Today. Um, what what are some of the, the skeptical or some of the most common skeptical responses to the resurrection of Jesus? Yeah, and this is where we want to be clear. Um, we always want to state the case against as well. The case of, against the resurrection is rather weak, to believe it or not. Believe it or not. Um, and I, I do spend a chapter on this because... You know, there have been several what we call naturalistic theories proposed, you know. uh, Well, we even see it in the Gospels, don't we, Bill? Do you remember the payoff of the soldiers? Hey, don't tell them the tomb's empty. Told them that the disciples stole the body. So they could not um, deny the fact that the tomb was empty. So right there, there's your first alternative explanation. Um, But remember, um, we learn that we should really go with what makes sense, what has the most explanatory power, the most evidence. Um, But there are people that, like Garrett Ludemann, who died in 2021, who said it's it's a certainty that people saw Jesus alive after he was dead. But you know what? They all hallucinated. I mean, this, this is an atheistic Bible scholar claiming that everybody, 600 plus people, had the same hallucination at the same time. That's never <laughs> happened in psychological history, by the mm-hmm. way. You won't find that in any psychology course because it just doesn't happen. Um, there are others. Um, there are even some that are rather relatively recent that are pejorative against women. Oh, did you, didn't you? did you know the women weren't that smart in the first century? They went to the wrong tomb. You know, they went to the wrong address of where Jesus was buried. Listen, to say that betrays your utter ignorance of Jewish burial traditions, that no one lost track of the bones. Go to the land of Israel today. You'll see 150,000 people buried on the Mount of Olives alone. You don't lose track of your loved ones. And so, and then I'm sorry to say this, but it's become, this is something I've learned. Um, things like mythicism, that Jesus never existed. No scholar takes that seriously. But Bill, do you know that's alive and well on YouTube and TikTok right now? I'm not surprised. These people that have massive followings mm. um, they will get on their you know million plus subscribers and say, hey, Jesus is like Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. Oh. Friends, if we can't believe in Jesus, don't believe in the Roman Empire. Um so th- that's the, the in, that's the case against it, and that's what I mean. It's so weak. I remember walking home to my flat in Oxford, where my twelve-week-old daughter and Audrey were waiting for me, and I just had a grin on my face because I realized I had read every academic argument there was against the resurrection, and I couldn't believe that the whole world didn't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in it because they don't want to. Hmm. That's crazy. 
They don't do it based on the evidence. So here's how I said it actually in a book I just endorsed released Robel. I, I came up with a new um, quote and I text and I'll actually read to you the quote. Um, I just said the case for the resurrection of Jesus is such that you cannot disbelieve it on historical grounds. The historical data is unimpeachable. One may dis disbelieve the resurrection on philosophical or theological grounds, but you cannot disagree with the historicity and archaeology which support the resurrection accounts in the, re in the can canonical gospels. So, you know, if you're a Muslim and your Quran, which is 600 years after Jesus, says in Surah 158 that Jesus actually didn't die on the cross, Okay, so you don't believe it because your Quran says that, but you can't disbelieve it based on the evidence. So I hope I'm making that point on your show. Oh, it's a fantastic point. All right, we're going to take a little break. Dr. Jeremiah Johnston, that's with a T in there, is my guest. Body of Proof is the name of his book, The Seven Best Reasons to Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus and Why It Matters Today. We'll be right back. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. My friend, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston, is my guest today. And he's written a book called Body of Proof. I highly encourage you to get your hands on a copy and enjoy it and read it and study it and get it into your head and your heart. So, Jeremiah, you spent a whole chapter in your book on archaeological findings relative to the resurrection. Say more about that. Yeah, it's amazing and exciting that the relatively young science of archaeology, which has really only been around uh, in its current form for a little over 100 years, about 150 years. It's fascinating that there is such incredible, overpowering evidence that supports the resurrection narratives we have embedded in the Gospels. In fact, I quote Jody Magnus. She herself is an archaeologist trained in Jewish burial traditions and archaeology. What's fascinating is she's an atheist archaeologist, and she's aware of all of the archaeology of the land of Israel. And let me give you her exact quote about the resurrection accounts in the gospel narratives. Quote, the gospels get it right. Wow. So archaeology is the closest cousin of Christianity. I love this. I love this fact. And do we, do we realize as believers, do we take time to just sit and appreciate, wow, my faith is so well evidenced. Other faith systems do not use archaeology because there is no evidence for them. Um, after all, even Islam claims there never was a Jewish temple. That was actually an op-ed in the New York Times. I mean, can you believe they would run something like that, that there was never a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount? Wow. Um, you can't make those kind of claims because they're unhistorical. I'm not saying that as a Christian. I'm saying that as a historian. <laughs> All right. uh, fascinating. I mean, it's just so fascinating. And then when we look at things like um, we actually have a crucified heel bone. Yes, I just said that correctly. Um, we have a crucified man who was crucified under the reign of Pontius Pilate. 
We actually know his name. Why? Because names were written on these things called bone boxes, which are technically called ossuaries. His name is Yehohanan. That's the long form of John, by the way. So John is crucified under the reign of Pontius Pilate. They couldn't get the iron crucifixion spike out of his heel bone. And you have to bury the body in Judaism before nightfall. Um, and they just decided, you know, it had fish hooked. Hey, let's bury the crucified man with the crucifixion nail, uh, no matter what. Let's just go ahead and bury all that. And now it's a priceless artifact 2,000 years ago. But what does it tell us? In the land of Israel, under the reign of Pontius Pilate, even crucified criminals were granted proper, not honorable, but proper burial. Mm, so interesting. Well, when you t- talk about skeptics, Jeremiah, they they can agree on some things. What are some of the things that skeptics can agree on? When you just talked about this atheist, you know, talking about the historical fact of the resurrection, what else can skeptics agree on? Uh, it's amazing. And again, friends, this is if you like, or if you're attending some of these skeptics courses at university um, and they're Bible scholars, it's fascinating to me. They will grant the following and just hear me clearly. I'll do this quickly. Number one, all skeptics agree that Jesus had some kind of intimate relationship with God. They all grant that. Nobody discounts that fact. And so why is that important? Well, 69 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as son of man. Bill, if you and I were a Jewish audience, we would recognize immediately what Jesus was signaling there. In Daniel chapter 7, Jesus is called son of man. That means he's the Messiah who will sit next to the Ancient of Days. Number two, they all claim that Jesus became famous as a miracle worker and an exorcist. This is powerful. Um, and we, again, back to archaeology, we have incredible archaeology that shows that, hey, even the pagans understood there was power with this name Jesus. <laughs> we even see it in the book of Acts. Remember Simon Magus? He he wants to learn how to heal the way the disciples do so mm-hmm. he can earn money. Right. Um, so and that's fascinating. Number three, skeptics will agree that Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven 54 times in the Gospels. Think about this. Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And then fourthly, this is where it really gets penetrating, and it really shows the heart behind this. And guys, you're hearing this in sound bites. Just know um, I've been studying this for 20 plus years, so I'm giving you a summation of a lot of work here. E.P. Sanders, Garrett Ludemann, Paula Fredrickson, these would all be either liberal, uh, it's on a sliding scale, liberal Christians or non-Christian Bible scholars or out-and-out atheist Bible scholars claim that Jesus's followers and Paul had experiences of seeing Jesus alive after he was dead. It's a fact. It's a historical certainty. Isn't that amazing? It's absolutely amazing, yeah. Yeah. And yet they just don't believe in it. So you have to understand um, that's the Holy Spirit's part. We can give the evidence, but hey, it still is an act of faith to trust in Christ. But remember, faith in evidence, not faith celebrating the absence of evidence. Mm Mm-hmm. Jeremiah Johnson writes in his book, when you fully understand the implications of the resurrection, you will begin to understand the power of Christ in you, and it changes everything. So, Jeremiah, so many have experienced loss and and grief. Uh, Does your book, Body of Hope, uh, does it offer something to those who are hurting? 
Well, I'm so glad you asked that. Yes. And that's the beautiful thing about the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, I'm happy to announce on this program for the first time, we are doing a Bible study now that's an adaptation of the book. And the Bible study is all about the hope that's found in the book that now people want to do it as a, as a Bible study. I want in. I want in. God will come out uh, before next Easter. And, you know, when I was writing this book, I never far from my mind was my little sister, Jenny Lee, one of the godliest people I've ever met, a far better Christian than her older brother, Jeremy. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he experienced, she and her husband, the stillborn birth of their son, Wesley. And he was 25 weeks old when he met Jesus. And Jenny Lee, only because of the power of the resurrection, was able to write in the blog, I know that the first time our son Wesley opened his eyes, he saw Jesus. Mm. Now, friends, the world can't say that. Uh, and it's still a devastating loss to my little sister. That takes nothing away from the pain she's experienced, the counseling she's needed, which anyone would who loses a child. But what's so interesting is the resurrection is truly what's allowed her to get up in the morning and put one foot in front of the other because she knows it's just a temporary goodbye. First Thessalonians 4, we grieve, but we don't grieve without hope. First, First Corinthians 15, 58, therefore be strong, be immovable. Yes, you're suffering, but still be strong, be immovable, knowing that God sees everything you're doing. It's not in vain. John, John 14, 19, and I would just express all this to those who are listening who've heard it, who, who hurt now. Because Jesus lives, we will live also. And so we have this, and then I'll just end with this, 1 Peter 1, 3. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who because of the resurrection of, the, of Jesus from the dead, we has invited us into a living hope. Do you need that living hope today? I do. Yeah, I do and too. My sister has that, and mm. the world doesn't. And so, yes. I do hope the book does offer all kinds of hope like that. And and that's the cool thing about when we talk about the resurrection, this isn't some kind of cerebral exercise, friends. This is us strengthening our own walk with Christ. And man, you, you finish this book and you're just so filled with hope. Oh my gosh, this is real. <laughs> this is happening. It's based in the real world. And that's the blessing of it and the beauty of it. Yeah. Fantastic. I could talk for the rest of the afternoon with you, Jeremiah. This is uh, been a great discussion, and I know a lot of people are going to be excited to get their hands on a copy of Body of Proof. That's the name of the book, Body of Proof, The Seven Best Reasons to Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus and Why It Matters. And the author is my guest and friend, Jeremiah Johnston, with a T. Jeremiah, I just so appreciate you, and I love having you on. And anytime you want to come on my show, you can. Oh, Bill, you are such a gem. Thank yeah. you so much. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your spirit to have me on. I so appreciate you, and and I give God all the glory for what he's doing. So thank you for the opportunity to share about it. All right. Have a great weekend, and uh, praise to God for your dad and his recovery. That's amazing. Thank you, Bill. Love you, brother. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Jeremiah. Yep. All right. One more time. If you just tuned in, the name of the book is Body of Proof, and I always encourage you to, you know, you can go right to Amazon.com. Check it out. Probably can read the first chapter a lot of a lot of books you can do that, but this is a gem, and I know you will get a lot out of this. And again, body of proof. We're going to take a little break, and then when we come back, Clay Craby is going to talk about biblical doctrine and theology. Be right back.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Well, I certainly think it's important to have sound biblical theology. I think it's important we study it. I think it's important we talk about it, and that's what Hi, this we're going to do Bill. today. I thought this guest, interview Clayton was so Krabby. good. You can learn I more about him at reasonabletheology.org. So he wants to keep things simple and accessible. And if you go to his website, reasonabletheology.org, you will find that. Clayton, welcome back to the show. Hey, appreciate you having me back on. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of people that think, uh, you know, how much time should I study doctrine and theology? Because it's kind of hard to understand and maybe a little dull. Yeah, unfortunately, I think there's there's plenty of Christians that think theology is is reserved for those who are in seminary or perhaps uh, the pastor or perhaps your your strange cousin that likes dusty old books. But really, <laughs> uh, theology is something that everyone, every believer, should be uh, invested in in developing their doctrine, developing their understanding of God. Because at the end of the day, uh, everyone is doing theology to some extent, because we're all having thoughts about God, trying to understand God, reading our Bible to know what God has revealed to us, and all of that does fall under the umbrella of theology. Mm -hmm. So, Clayton, we're not going to have much of a a seminary lesson today, uh, and I don't think anyone wants that today, but let's talk about some theological topics that we should have a better understanding of. Absolutely. When it comes to, you know, theology, I think people feel that it's so broad, it's so big, they don't know where to start, and it kind of helps to break it down a little bit. Uh, So when we're talking theology, really what we're talking is, that word is theo and ology. Ology we're familiar with. We have all sorts of words that have that ending when we're talking about biology or something like that, and it's the study of. Well, theos, meaning God, it's the study of God, and it's really even broader than that. It's really the study of anything that God has revealed to us. So when we're talking about we're studying and, and trying to understand more about who God the Father is, that's that's what's going to be known as like theology proper. If we're studying to know more about Christ, that's Christology. If we're studying about the church, that's ecclesiology. If you're studying about the end times, that's eschatology. So I think what happens is a lot of these these big words, these uh, you know, these Greek-sounding terms can kind of scare people off, but if they take a moment to just understand what those terms are getting at, it's really not as uh, as big a mountain to climb as people fear it is. Yeah, well said, and I appreciate you know showing and revealing some of the categories because it does make it more accessible. Um, so when you ask a person about their biblical doctrine or their theology. Um, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a daunting question. It should be, well, I've been a student of the Bible for 20 years and this is what I understand, uh, the Bible to mean. And we should be able to share that openly with people. Absolutely. And, and once people realize that they are engaged in theology to some extent, that gets less daunting. R.C. Sproul famously said that everyone, every Christian is a theologian. The, the question is not whether you're going to be a theologian, it's whether you're going to be a good one or a bad one. And, and <laughs> like so that. we need to put that time and that effort so that, that we are having right thoughts about God. We are understanding and comprehending all that he has revealed to us. And there's a number of ways that he has done so, 
And it is the task of the Christian to be attentive to what God wants us to know. Mm-hmm. So when you uh, study, tell me your study habits and practices. How do you go about uh, studying God's Word and doing what we're discussing today? Is it's becoming equipped and uh, studying theology and, and doctrine? Sure, that's a good question. And that that might look different depending on what you're doing. And that actually fits fairly neatly into understanding some of the the broader categories of studying theology. So if you're reading your Bible, let's say you are uh, in the book of James and you want to better understand what the Apostle Paul is saying when he's for instance, he's talking about, you know, the tongue is a fire and it can call it all this damage. And and you want to understand what does he mean by that? And you're checking other passages of scripture and and really just digging deep into a particular passage, whether that be the Sermon on the Mount or whatever it is you're studying, well, you're going to find yourself in the realm of biblical theology. You are approaching God's special revelation, that is his word, scripture, and you're trying to understand it. You're using Scripture to interpret Scripture so that you know what is being told to you, and that might involve using tools here and there, a commentary or something to help you understand the original language. Now, if you're trying to understand, for example, a particular element of the faith, if you want to understand what the Bible has to say about uh, angels, what the Bible has to say about marriage, what the Bible has to say about money. Now you're talking about more of a systematic theology study where you're trying to understand and use resources where people have tried to pull together all that the Bible has to say on a particular topic. So systematic theology is not scary. Anytime that you are trying to study one specific thing and then going to multiple resources, multiple passages to understand that, you're doing systematic theology. So when I'm studying Um, whether you're preparing for a sermon or to teach something or just for your own devotional benefit, it kind of depends on which way you're approaching that as to what category of theological study you find yourself in. Mm -hmm. Clayton Krabby is my guest. You can uh, learn more about uh, Clayton at reasonabletheology.org. I saw a, a TV program years ago, and what happened was they took the same tax uh, information and sent it to six different accountants and, uh, you know, smart firms, and they came back with six very radically different returns. How can using the same information produce such different results? Now, having said that, how can you put six theologians in the room and get such radically different results on the same material? That's a good question. I think when people see that is the case, sometimes the 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 quote unquote average Christian will throw their hands up and say, "If these uh, fine educated people can't figure it out, I'm not going to try." Mm-hmm. Uh, I I don't want people to take that approach. Uh, you there's a variety of things, not the least of which is that we don't have a full, complete, infallible understanding of everything that God has revealed to us. So our own uh, faults, misunderstandings, our own biases can be can come into that process. Uh, we might have um, different areas where we're just not clear as to what Scripture has taught, and that impacts other ways of understanding the Bible. Uh, the other things that can happen, too, is there's a variety of 
options at times that are well within the realm of orthodox belief. They're not essentials. They're they're kind of um, secondary doctrines and things like that, where where good faithful Christians can come to different conclusions, and neither of them are therefore outside the household of faith, and we don't need to see it uh, as such a black and white. It was either uh, heresy or it was orthodox. But for example, when uh, believers have different understandings of uh, who are the proper recipients of baptism, for example, mm-hmm. they might agree on 99 points out of 100, and they've come to different conclusions on that because of their different conclusions about the nature of the Old and New Covenants. And, and so these things can take place easily enough to where you have people that approach uh, the same text with the same goal of understanding it and come out with different conclusions. Now, uh, that doesn't always have to be a, a negative thing. Now, sometimes you get six people that disagree because five of them are wrong. Uh, <laughs> yeah. in, in other times, there are nuanced understandings of uh, kind of more tertiary matters where uh, we don't have perfect clarity because of of God choosing to reveal only a certain amount, and so that leaves room for opinions to to enter the picture. Mm-hmm. And we just have to rightly know and understand what things ought we hold lightly to, and what things are we to stand firm on and not move an inch because they are essential doctrines of the faith. The mm. resurrection, for example. Yes, uh, I'm not open to to different opinions on whether or not Jesus bodily rose from the dead. Yeah, but when you host a radio show, uh, Clayton, I sometimes think of topics like uh, the Trinity, uh, humanity and sin, salvation, and even eschatology. There's going to be differing opinions and and positions. And, uh, you know, this is why I think it's important that we we all study and do our, our work and let the Holy Spirit lead us to our understanding of where we, what the Bible teaches on this. Absolutely, and I would actually encourage people. Again, this is this is couched within the realm of orthodox belief. I'm not telling to go pick up a book from some some guy that leads a cult or something. But right. there's great value in reading and listening to what someone who disagrees with you on some of these matters has to teach. You may find that you were wrong. Or you may find cause to have better understood the position they're coming from, and then it just solidifies your view all the more. I I went through years at uh, a seminary that was predominantly Presbyterian. I'm a Baptist, and I came out more Baptist on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. But there was a great value. It is actually probably more helpful for developing my Baptist convictions to have been at a Presbyterian seminary than it would have to have been at a Baptist seminary where everyone already agreed with me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Clayton, maybe we can just talk about a couple of ideas, a couple of topics, and how uh, the- theology uh, and doctrine would apply. You know, when you hear an expression like, we are all people created in the image of God, what would be your understanding or the, the theological understanding of the image of God? Yeah, that's a good question, and that really brings people down to uh, some of the the earliest, um, most those basic building blocks of God's revelation. He reveals Himself as Creator, and He reveals uh, that He has created mankind in a 
whole other category that is different than the animals, uh, the, the natural world around us. And so this is actually a really helpful example because at the very first glance, someone might read that and say, oh, well, if we are created in God's own image, does that not mean that God has a face and hands and a body and Mm -hmm. feet and needs to sleep and needs to eat? And then you read passages of scripture that seem to go against that. And now mentally, uh, you have an issue. And now it's time to do theology and bring in lots of different tools that we have available to us. Uh, first and foremost is that of Scripture. And and what has that revealed to us about the nature of God? Um, then you can also bring in things like historical creeds and confessions and catechisms. The one that I'm doing with my four-year-old right now, we practiced it yesterday morning, is uh, – who is God? And the answer is God is a spirit and does not have a body like a man. Um, those are things that can help us start to categorize. And now understanding that we are made in his image and yet God is not physical as we are. He is not limited as we are. So what can this mean? And then we start to see things that his attributes in some of those, we, we can't touch them. We can't be omnipresent. We can't be all-knowing. But some of those, here comes a big theological word, communicable attributes, those are, to an extent, shared with his creation, shared with mankind. The capacity for love, for creativity, things like that. We are made in God's image. We reflect the the handiwork of our creator. Hmm. So Hi, good. This is Bill. Krabby's I thought my this guest. interview was so and good. I wanted we talk to about hear it theology again. and so doctrine. Enjoy. You know, when you when somebody asked you, Clayton, about something like free will, is there such a thing? It's important that you've you've done some work on this and you've had some biblical understanding because these, I think, some are some of the kinds of questions people are going to be asking along the way. Yeah, and as you start to uh, maybe be a little more attentive to, a little bit more intentional in studying theology and, and shoring up your doctrine, you're going to see that there are some some very common questions that come about often. This is one of them is, okay, if, if God is all-powerful and God is all-loving— well, how is it that you know bad things can happen to people, that I can go off and sin, that I can, all these things that, that really uh, get wrapped up in this conversation about the nature of free will? And in something like that, and in really in any theological issue, it's, for, it's, it's helpful to first come about and land on what do we mean? What is the definition? What do we mean by free will? And we start to look at Scripture and see what does it teach in relation to man's will and and God's will and how those interact. And then we look at also the fact that we are fallen. So when it relates to our, our free will, we see that there has been severe damage done to that because of the consequences of sin. And, and coming from my theological perspective, outside of Jesus Christ, we do not— really have the ability 
uh, to to not sin and, and theological our theologians over the years have had you know fancy Latin words for this and uh, passe non pecare and all this stuff that is you know if you want to impress your friends you can Google that stuff and try to memorize the different categories but basically it goes that that man's cycle has been uh, at the first Adam and Eve they were able not to sin and, and they did sin. And because of the fall, because we are all in Adam, we are all fallen, now we are not able not to sin. Once we are in Christ, we are able not to sin yet again. It doesn't mean we'll be perfect. It doesn't mean that we'll ever uh, be without sin on this side of eternity, but we have the Holy Spirit in us enabling us to avoid sin. And then once we are glorified, we are with Christ in heaven, we are not able to sin. So you see how it, it kind of goes through these different categories of what our free will is in relation to how we have been affected by the fall and uh, how we have been freed by those effects through Christ. And now that's not to say that... Uh, all we do is sin, and, and nobody outside of Christ has ever done anything good. That's that's not that's not the theological uh, backdrop that we're working with. Is to say that our nature, our very wills, have been marred by sin, and we have a propensity and inclination towards sin. So it's not the case that uh, we just have a free will to do whatever we want, good and evil. No, we are predisposed to evil unless and until God redeems us, and then we are increasingly made like our Savior. Our wills are being changed and shaped to be as God's will until he, he brings us to be with him, in which we will be, uh, as, as Christ is, we will be without sin, both the presence, the penalty, and, and the propensity for it. So interesting. Clayton Crabby's my guest. We're talking about studying doctrine and theology. A light topic, no doubt. We're going to take a break and be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. I'm back with Clayton Crape. Uh, Craby, and I think it's important that Christians, uh, believers, we spend more time studying doctrine and theology, and Clayton loves to do that. You can learn more about him at reasonabletheology.org. I love the word reasonable. I love the word practical. That seems to be a word that pops up with theology as practical theology, and I think that name implies it's intended to just make it uh, applicable and using it, studying Scripture in a way that it can be used and is relevant in everyday concerns. That's that's really my goal with the site and you know the podcasts I do and, and things like that is is taking things that can be a bit daunting and and making them a little bit more easy to understand. So it's really taking that sound doctrine and and explaining them in simple terms. Mm-hmm. Clayton, can you give us an example of uh, of you doing your your podcast, maybe a, a theological uh, concept that you think is maybe hard for people to understand, and here's how I broke it down. I know I'm putting you on the spot, and I, <laughs> I 
apologize if I'm doing that, but no, that's okay. I'm just trying to think back to recent episodes, um, a, a lot of which will deal with a particular topic, sure, uh, more so than uh, a singular element of theology. So, for example, a recent one uh, you'll be familiar with the Apostles' Creed and with having just uh, celebrated the resurrection. The Apostles' Creed talks about how Christ was crucified, dead, and buried, and and it says he descended into hell. And and the question is, well. Did he? Where where was where was Jesus between the crucifixion and the resurrection? What does this mean uh, in terms of what Scripture has to say on the topic? What does it mean the fact that this this creed from the second century has this information? How do I, I to understand it? And if Scripture does not in fact, explicitly teach that, how should we respond when we're reciting the Apostles' Creed? So that was a, a recent episode and an article, I think it's up on YouTube as well, that I kind of worked through the options of, okay, how do we rightly understand this passage in Scripture? So we're, we're approaching it from the lens of biblical theology. How do we understand how this particular part of the creed came to be? What did the original authors mean by it? How was it understood by various theologians? Well, now we're talking historical theology, and all these things get pulled into one one place. So there'd be a recent example of something that was a fairly tricky topic to, to understand. There's lots, there's one of these areas where, where lots of people will, will disagree and have various opinions, and, and I think there's plenty of room within orthodoxy to have various opinions on that, but I, I wanted to break that down, help people explore it, and not be scared to ask questions like that, but to to get in their Bibles and try to rightly understand the text. Mm, so good. When we spend time in Scripture engagement, uh, in our personal study, in our Bible studies, uh, we should always be asking questions and not being afraid right away if we can't discover the answer, because there is part of the great journey in our Christian faith is to say, I'm going to spend my whole life studying this book, and probably at the end, when I'm taking my last breath, I'll go, boy, I just scratched the surface. Absolutely. And I actually think if someone is looking to enrich their time in their scripture reading, and they feel that it's a little bit flat, it's not very deep, um, a likely a potential remedy for that is to ask more questions. Are you asking questions of the text? <laughs> who who is talking? Who was this being written to? What is happening at this time in in redemptive history, as in uh, God's God's plan of salvation through Christ? I mean, the Old Testament, the New Testament. What's happening uh, historically in this region at the time? What does this word mean in the original language? The more you ask questions, the deeper you're going to go in your study and, and the more benefit you're going to gain from it. So if you're just reading your Bible, thinking, oh, that's nice, closing your Bible, yeah, you're not going to really feel that you studied it. You read it, but reading your Bible and studying your Bible is a, a different task. Mm-hmm. And I know there was a study not too long ago uh, at Lifeway Research that talked about why people did not read their Bibles or prioritize it. Uh, that that was a pretty interesting t- statistics, and you can find uh, that. You wrote about that at reasonabletheology.org. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, and I don't recall the, the full results of that study, but I, I, one of the main ones is exactly what you would expect, is people have a sense 
of not having time. Oh, I didn't have time. Uh, and, and then uh, you, you can kind of confront yourself with how many hours you spent on Netflix or on your phone or whatever else. It's, it's not really a question of time. It's, it's a question of priority. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a pretty... Um, a pretty convicting quote I heard was actually in relation to prayer, but it applies just the same is, you know, social media at, at the end of all things will, will prove that our lack of prayer was not for a lack of time. Yeah. So true. And I think you could say the same thing about our study of scripture. It's not a lack of time. You have as much time as, as any other person has in a day. Uh, you have as much time as any king or queen or president or whoever else. Yeah. It's about the proper use of time and making spending time in God's word a priority. Yeah, and Clayton, in that article, the provocative question was, uh, if you could read the entire New Testament in 40 days just by reading in your spare time, what an accomplishment that would be. And you can do it by um, 30 minutes a day. Right. And and people are surprised by that. They look at their Bibles, they see how thick it is, they see how small the font is, and, and that scares them. They think it's it's a, a task that they couldn't possibly accomplish. But you really can. I mean, think of thinking of waking up fifteen minutes earlier and taking fifteen minutes of your lunch break or fifteen minutes in the afternoon to spend some time reading through the Bible. Right. Uh, there is great benefit to be had by that. And again, there's a difference between studying in depth and reading, mm-hmm. but but you have to be familiar with its content. Reading through entire books of the Bible or, or big chunks of the Bible in one sitting is incredibly valuable. Yeah, Clayton, thanks so much for being back on the show. Always glad to uh, have you on, and it's good to hear your voice. Always glad to join you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Clayton Crabby has been my guest. ReasonableTheology.org is where you can learn more about him. We'll take a break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.